Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 348, recorded August 15th, 2023. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Arkin. And Brian, this episode is brought to everybody by us. I think you might be making a more concrete case for that yeah. than other times today. So, but yeah, check out all of our courses, books, things like that. It, it genuinely makes it possible for us to do this kind of stuff. So... Yeah, we, we really love doing it. it, but yeah, also. Yeah, yeah, also. And if you want to be part of the live show and you're not watching live now, Tuesdays at 11, Python Bytes.fm slash live, all the details there. Ryan, let's kick it off. What's your first item? I Actually, it's I'm kind of on a packaging, a little bit of a packaging thing today. Okay, okay. Brett Cannon wrote an article called Differentiating Between Writing Down Dependencies to Use Packages. And for packages themselves, it's kind of a big title, but uh, here's the idea. And I've been thinking about this also. So I really, there's requirements.txt files, and those are often used for applications. And then there's, but, but this, that was, that was really when we had like, that was either that or setup.py for uh, packages. And now we have pyproject.toml. So can't we just use that? Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to. But it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, you install dependencies with a pyproject.toml by doing a pip installing your package. And you can install it like pip install.e. I think uh, Brett, uh, yeah, pip install.e. Dash e. Dot. Da dash e, right. And on the current directory, or you can give it a, a local project directory. Um, and you can even do optional things like optional test dependencies and stuff. And, and I think... I think when you do the dash e, it installs your your optional test dependencies. Also, I'm not sure, but um, and I'm used to that because I do packages also. But we still have the requirements.txt file. There really are for different things. Um, so uh, Brett has talks about this a lot in here and looking at why there's a there's a thing called like project dependencies, and the project is really meant for packaging. It's really meant just for pack the the whole packaging system so that so that when you um when you install something install a wheel it knows where how to get packages from for it that's it um it's not supposed to be for applications so really that's kind of the discussion around here um around this article however there's a couple ideas um he, he references uh also references back a donald stuffed article in from 2013 about setup.py versus requirements.txt. But like I said, that was setup.py. Maybe we could do something better. Brett's uh, consideration is maybe um, maybe we could have some standard, uh, uh, something, some other file that we could have. Um, I personally, I have a, uh, I think that maybe we could expand pyproject.toml. I really like the toml thing. So maybe we could either have a requirements.toml um, or maybe we could have like, instead of a project section of the Tomo file, maybe we could have a maybe an application section. Maybe that would work. Um, yeah. So, anyway. yeah, I think like a, like a dev requirements, even just in the pyproject.toml seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we run, I run into it in other places too, like just, a in a, a Git repo that has like a couple Python tools in it, um, that people can install on their own but they might have some requirements. How do you list those? Do you stick them as applications? I mean, requirements.txt is normally the thing that's used for uh, for like uh, Django app web applications and things like that. So maybe requirements.txt is fine, but uh, I think- Perhaps. Uh, what I have is I have, for my world, I have requirements.txt, which is 
like for the web apps and stuff, that is what is required for the app to run. Without that, it, yeah. you can't make it go. Then I have a requirement stash dev.txt. I've seen that pattern a lot. And then to actually generate those, I use pip tools and pip compile. So I have requirements.in and requirements-dev.in. And then I can it, you know auto-update all the dependencies and keep them in sync. And yeah. that's how I do it these days. But we're... we're but now, like, let's even people with like uh, Django or you know other things are using a private product tunnel also to to store like their black settings and things like that. So mm, yeah, um, yeah, we're kind of using project tunnel, the pipe project tunnel for more things, and I think maybe we could extend it for this. Anyway, that's my hope. Seems reasonable. Hope. Yeah. So anyway, uh, what do you got for us? Well, let's let's monkey around a little bit with the Python monkey. <laughs> with the Python monkey. That's that's so, cute. It is. So this comes to us from, created by Will Pringle, I believe, amongst others. Let's see. On the contributors here. Um, there, yeah, there we go. Yeah, so a bunch of folks that work on this project. It's not super popular with only 276 stars, but I think it might be a pretty darn interesting compatibility layer for Python. Hmm. So what do I mean by that? So imagine I, I'm... You can look at this from two perspectives. So don't scoff at one if you prefer the other. <laughs> so imagine I'm a JavaScript developer and I've got a ton of cool JavaScript code that not just for the web front end, but you know, kind of in the Node.js sense, like a bunch of utilities or a bunch of libraries that, that work and do certain things, right? Yeah. But I also have a Python app and I'd like to somehow use those together. So Python Monkey is a, it's the right way to put it. It, it basically hosts JavaScript, a full-on high-performance JavaScript, JIT compiled to almost native performance JavaScript engine inside of Python through pip install. So if I wow. wanted to use some of the JavaScript code, I just write my Python application. And for that function or that functionality, I just import the, you know, first spider monkey or Py not Python monkey. And then I import the JavaScript files that you would use. And then you just call them like Python functions. Mm. Okay. Or reverse, I'm writing a Python application and, you know, one option to make like slow loops go faster would be to write that in Cython and Cython's getting better with the Cython 3 release that we discussed already in the previous episode. But JavaScript, because this thing, uh, the spider monkey JavaScript engine is the one that I believe Firefox uses, does JIT compilation to native code. It basically is near native performance as well. So if you'd like, you could rewrite that part in TypeScript or JavaScript and run just that section. And it uses things like shared memory between JavaScript and Python. So if you've got like a string or a list, those are those are the same objects, which is pretty crazy. Wow. At least for the strings. Okay. So uh, let's look at some examples. There's an article by Will and no, I will not log into you, Medium. You're partially evil. Okay. So here's an article by... <laughs> My will here. It says, look at, let's look at some code examples. All right, so import Python monkey as PM, and then you say PM eval and give it JavaScript code, and then boom, it runs that. That's one way. Uh, what you can do maybe is more interesting is look at this. I can say PM.eval and give it an anonymous JavaScript function, and then what comes back, not evaluating it, but just the thing to define the function in JavaScript, okay? And then what comes back is an object that itself is a function, hmm. okay? So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, like, and hold on, there's two parts to this. So I've got a, I've created a JavaScript function that's JIT compiled 
in spider monkey through this eval and what the I didn't say this part. What the function takes is given a function, it will call that function passing hello world to it. Okay, the string hello world. Okay. So what you do is you get the function back as a Python function and then they pass print. It somehow proxies the print function into the JavaScript space and then JavaScript calls the Python print, which it then comes back to the console, to the terminal. Wow, oh, okay. That's some deep integration, right? That's some yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty wild stuff. Uh, let's see, what else can we do here? This is pretty interesting. I can say, um, given a JavaScript module like I described, I can, you know, here's an example. It has a say hello export. Then you can just say pm.require that JavaScript module. And now you've got all the function, um, all the export behavior from that JavaScript module, hmm. right? Which is cool. Um, yeah, there's, there's some more examples in here. The other angle that's pretty interesting, there's two more angles that are interesting. Because it uses SpiderMonkey, and SpiderMonkey is awesome with WebAssembly, allows you to run un, um, untrusted WASM code from languages like C, C++, and Rust, you can now basically do uh, any, you can call any WebAssembly code as well that you'd like oh, inside of your function. Now we're getting interesting. And it's a, yeah, it supports things like async and await, using the async and await keywords to handle the callback nature of JavaScript, like the um, the dot then type of deferreds and different things. So you can just async and await those behaviors, right? Just await a WebAssembly call, which is pretty excellent. Yeah, so there's a bunch of uh, examples, some pretty cool graphics here <laughs> with Spock and... Uh, Captain Kerr going, my mind to your mind, my object to your dicks, your dicks to my objects. <laughs> it's pretty awesome there. Uh, another angle that is worth considering is this allows the entire Python data science stack to become accessible to JavaScript developers, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you if you want to use, you know, the machine learning stuff, if you want to use pandas or polars, right, you just write your code and then, you know, do the integration here. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, it, it finishes with, um, some funny little pictures here of, a uh, Noah <laughs> on the arc, <laughs> got a Python and a JavaScript, which looks like a penguin. And then it has the Python monkey. What, what is that? What the heck is this? All right. Anyway, that's, um, that's Python monkey, which is, I think potentially interesting. So with the, with the web assembly and stuff, you could potentially have like every other function in your system be implemented by a different language. Um, kind of fun. <laughs> I'm bored of uh, <laughs> C, C++, Rust, Go. Uh, what else do we want to write it in? Yeah, why not everything? <laughs> uh, just make sure that your your application is only maintainable by you. That'd be exactly. Like, do you know how many compilers you need to do this? No, you this need them all. It's kind of fun to to joke about, but this does look pretty cool. So yeah, yeah, it does look pretty cool. So you know, congrats to the folks there. This. Maybe it'll go somewhere. We'll see. It's yeah. it's pretty interesting. I think um, also it's it's worth noting um, that there is uh, somewhere in here that there's a comparison to other things. So this apparently is not the only time such a type of creation uh, has been attempted. So it says there are other projects that already do JavaScript and Python, such as js to pi PyV8, and Metacall. But there's a bunch of different drawbacks or stuff. It says this is why we created it, basically. In addition, so JS to Pi is implemented entirely in Python, which sounds awesome, except, you know, V8 and SpiderMonkey compile to native code and run ultra fast. Whereas, you know, if you just run in Python, it probably doesn't have any of those things, right? Yeah. Um, PyV8 
uh, has a wrapper around Google's V8 JavaScript engine, which is great, but it's just super low level. You just like talk directly to the JavaScript bits, which mm. for things, for example, doesn't have async and await. And finally, Metacall is extensible, embeddable, and interoperable, but you've got to install a bunch of different runtimes outside of just pip install. So anyway, if people are going, but it exists. It, it does, but this apparently is why it, it exists like this. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah, and, and John out in the audience says, I I do this, but going the other way using transcript. Okay, interesting. Oh, transcript. Something else to, something new to check out. Thanks, John. I'll we'll take that out, so. All right. Over to you, Brian. Uh, well, I just, one more thing. Uh, Alvaro uh, says, uh, Python monkey, perfect for works on my machine certification. There, There is an official works on my machine certification. If you have, I know we talked about it before. It's glorious. It comes with a sticker. Your <laughs> nice. application code, getting the latest version of any recent changes from other developers, purely optional and not a requirement for certification. Launch the application, <laughs> cause one code path in the code you're checking to be executed. The preferred way to do this is with ad hoc manual testing. You can omit this step if the code change is less than five lines or if in the developer's professional opinion, the code cannot possibly result in an error. Check your code into version control, you're certified. <laughs> yeah. There we go, two jokes in one episode. How that? How about uh, that? Awesome. Well, we got a little bit more, uh, some a little more humor uh, to add to it. So because, uh, I thought it was a serious article, and it is. It's just funny and weird. So uh, Seth Larson wrote uh, Quirks of Python Packaging Versioning. Package, Python Package Versioning, that's it. Um, so we're used to, well, we're kind of getting used to uh, the world where we all have Semver, like 1.2.3, and for semantic versioning. But we also have calendar versioning, like 2023.6.1. And then there's stuff like you can add a pre-release suffix and things like that. But it gets way weirder and fun. Um, so, uh, and I have noticed this, especially with GitHub, like Get, GitHub versioning. Sometimes people will do uh, V versioning. So there's V prefixes you can do. And some, I guess you can pull that into your, uh, your Python application version as well. Why not? Um, so V versions are allowed. Uh, epic versions. Did you know about ep epic versions? I just learned about this. I don't think so. So it's um, you can you can have a, a a exclamation point separating your epic from the rest of your version. So this is so like one bang two point zero point zero would be epic one version two point zero point zero. Um, I got to tell you, I already had a hard time deciding when the two or when the middle zero or the last zero changes. If I put a, a number in front of an exclamation point, I'm going to just lost. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> too much decision. Too many decisions. Apparently some systems use colons for epics, but Python chose, this is all based on Python PEP 440. Um, and uh, the, uh, yeah, apparently we chose the bang symbol or is that bang, right? Uh, the exclamation yes. point. Um so, and that just kind of looks like a one. If you did one bang one, that would be hard to tell. Uh, local versions. Uh, and is you can you can extend after you have versions, you can have alphanumerics and uh, other stuff. Um, like, you know, here, plus. I don't know if the plus is part of it. Anyway, uh, so after your normal version, like 1.0.0, he has an example of plus Ubuntu dash one. Um, this gets normalized, but, uh, but, uh, and, but this is kind of nice for local. It's local versions because PyPI doesn't like it. So PyPI will not let you push up local versions to PyPI, which is probably right. Uh, it's local builds. Um, long versions. 
apparently you can use the use the first 217 digits of pi and that works fine uh, as as one of the digits there's no limits uh case insensitivity uh so yeah okay that's fine um it gets normalized lower or something so that you you know capital rc1 is the same as lowercase rc1 that's that's appropriate um <laughs> so pre-release i've seen i've actually used pre-release post i don't know if i use pre i've seen pre and i've used post-release occasionally although it's so weird that people don't understand what's going on so i don't do that anymore um but apparently pre post and dev are not mutually exclusive you can have but all three uh allowed in one version <laughs> why would you do that um so uh and uh yeah no delimiters needed um there's just a lot of fun here uh thanks so implicit hyphens are allowed so this is both the serious and non-serious oh implicit zeros are weird so uh you can you could if you have a uh, version 2.0.4 you can just keep adding a bunch of 0 .0 .0 0.0.0.0s and it works fine it resolves to 2.0.4 that's awesome um i i i definitely need to advertise some version say just just pick up 2.0.3.0.0.0.0 yeah looks makes it sound tough like yeah i mean in releases we've had anyway uh totally totally fun article so thanks seth brian do you hear that no that's the sound of a million regexes dying <laughs> <laughs> that are supposed to be scanning for the version string in your code. Yeah, but maybe that's why Python just has, out. My Python just has it as a string. It, it if you do dunder version equals, it's a it's just a string. So yeah. Um, Axel asks if you use C plus plus compiled code. So I guess native code that's like not part of just source only Python. Is there a way to define which compiler you used in the versioning? Maybe that Ubuntu type variant, that local version, but you can't publish that, right? Uh, you can't push it to PyPI like that, but like for instance, um, it's hey, I'm not sure how this re this relates to um, uh, like the wheel naming, the wheel download naming thing. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. I'm sure there's some metadata you could put in there, right? Like you can do Dunder version, right? You could just do Dunder compiler and say, you know, print that out, and it'll tell you. But it's not. No, there's no standard that I can think of. Well, there's the uh, there is the the wheel standard. Uh, I just don't remember where the link is. But that's is more or... platform-based, right, than a compiler. Oh, right. It's not compiler-based. It's platform-based. I mean, yeah. the compiler's got to compile to the platform, but it, it doesn't say, like, use GCC versus LLVM, Clang, yeah. Visual Studio, whatever, right? Right. Yeah. And usually I'm just doing pure Python, so I have all listed, but the wheel. Anyway. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, with all that uh, Python monkeying around, I could just barely stand it. <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> about bear type. Nice. The bear metal type checker. Okay, so people know I'm a huge fan of types, Python, type hints, and all those things. They're, they're super, super empowering and make the editors so much more helpful. It means you don't have to go into um, the documentation and go, what does this take again? I know it takes an, an args here, but is args a dictionary? Is it a class? Is it a string? Is it an, I, what is it, right? Like crazy stuff like that, right? Yeah. So types are awesome for conveying that information without having to go to the docs or some other place to figure it out. However, what Python type hints annotations generally don't do, as the word hint would uh, indicate, they don't require the hint. You can use tools like MyPy, and MyPy will say the typing looks consistent or inconsistent, 
But regardless of what it says, when you run the code, whether or not the typing is consistent, long as it actually still semantically valid, it's going to run. Even if you tell it the type, it takes a string, but you're really passing it. And it did plus to it, but you know what? You passed two integers and two strings and it still worked, right? Hmm. So the runtime version of typing in Python is mostly absent, right? Excluding things like Pydantic and a few others. So this bare type thing is a near zero cost, near real time, pure Python runtime type checker that makes runtime mismatches for typing runtime errors. Interesting. Okay. So you can say, this sounds like a horrible idea and I will never touch it. Please don't, you know, install the bear. Or you could say, I come from a static language and this dynamic typing business is freaking me out. Can we get a little closer? Then you can have it. I feel like this is the kind of thing that for little projects is completely useless, but for huge projects, it maybe it starts to become more valuable, right? Yeah. So if you just jump right into it, you pip install bear type, and then you can do things like uh, import the decorator and just put a decorator onto a function that has a type annotation or hint right there like that. So here's one that says, quote, Wiggum, and then it passes lines, and the type declaration says lines is a list of stir, and it returns none, okay? So then if you just use this function, pass it a list of strings, it just runs, right? Yeah. If, however, though, you pass it a list of bytes, which kind of look like strings, but are not strings, yeah. you get an exception that says parameter such and such and such, um, Violates the, the type first, of it. and it, yeah. it gives you the actual index in the list. It says list item zero with this value is not a string because it's a B string, which is really bytes, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is really cool. Um, and I, uh, I'm kind of uh, agreeing with uh, Alvaro. Um, said um, maybe maybe running with the test suite, and I was thinking maybe dynamically add these somehow. Uh, uh, use the bare types during development and maybe you know, maybe take them off later if it but if it's really yeah. fast um yeah yeah i'll i'll comment on that in a second uh there are also validators there's an is and an annotated validator if you want to be more restrictive maybe even than you might expect it's, it's part of python but it's not a commonly known part of the type ending thing so for example i could define a new type using annotated called list of strings Okay. And it says um, it has to be a list of strings as one part of the annotation. And then another one is, well, if it's, it has to be a non-empty set of strings is what they're trying to create here. Okay. So it says it, if it's a list with a bunch of stuff, the bunch of stuff has to be strings, but it also can test that it's not falsy, which would be the case when it's a just, you know, zero length list. So then you can annotate with that type. And if you call with regular somewhere, you call it with regular code, it's fine. But if you call it with the empty list, where it says a list of strings, it says, no, 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 it can't be an empty list. It has to be a non-empty list of strings. So there's like some pretty crazy things that you can can do here. Um, yeah, some other stuff you can check if you like. But yeah, it's, I, I wanted to read this, this introduction article here, which actually comes after all the examples. Um, by the way, it also, in order to run this, whole bunch of times. Um, it took 33 microseconds, which is pretty incredible to test, uh, test this for like an array of tuples of arrays of what is that a million, you know, 33 microseconds. So that's pretty fast, actually. Yeah, you still want to like compare it like your entire like some yeah. workflow compared to with or without. So 
Yep. So let me read this. So if people are wondering, right, well, what the heck is this? Bear type brings Rust and C++ inspired zero cost abstractions into the lawless world of dynamic typing, uh, dynamically typed Python by enforcing type safety at the granular level of functions and methods against type hints standardized by the Python community in 01 non-amortized worst case time with negligible constant factors. How about that? So if anyone asks what bear type is, there's your good description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, Pretty cool. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff about it. But anyway, that that's bear type. It looks pretty promising to me. Like uh, the drawback of a lot of these I think really is like, well, now you're doing a bunch of checking for every little function call and it's super slow. But if it's fast enough, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So a couple comments in the chat. Um, Mike Felder, uh, doesn't identic include call identic includes call validators too. So I'm not sure how it that did. relates. I don't know if that's out of beta. It last time I looked at it, it was still in like a testing Okay. It may be out, out though. I mean, there, there's a ton of work that's happened on Pydantic. It's all been redone. So I, I don't know the status of that. Maybe Mike does. Okay. And then also, um, is there a MyPy plugin that does that? I don't, I don't, I wasn't aware that MyPy could be used at runtime, but. I wasn't aware MyPy could be used at runtime either, but um, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway. But anyway, this, this looks pretty, you know, quite straightforward, pretty useful. You just do type ins, you put at bear type on it and it, it makes sure that it behaves. Yeah, so Brian, to do what you were looking at, sorry, to do where you might want to turn it off in production, but run it in testing, which is reasonable. I don't see any mechanism for that. There may be. Yeah, uh, but, it's a, but it, it's a decorator mechanism. So you could you could work around it if you needed to. Well, so. you could just write a decorator that looks whether that setting is on or off and either returns the bear type wrap thing or the direct function directly. And it would be like zero runtime cost. To, once it's turned off because the function is replaced with itself. Yeah. Otherwise it's replaced by the bear type decorated one. Right. So you could you might have to write like ten lines of Python. Yeah. And then you got that feature, right? The other thing is how much of your code are you really going to want to throw bear type decorators around all over the place? Yeah. That's a good point. Maybe just the boundary, right? Yeah, the AP, where, at the where, API level or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Yep. Anyway, there it is. Uh and I suppose that's it for all of our items. That's uh, what we got lined up for you? Anything else? Uh, Some extras. I have. A, I have you want me to go extras? first? You want to save yours? Or yeah, you yeah. Want, you you go, go first. All right. I already got my screen up anyway. Okay. So first of all, congratulations, Mike Felder, who is right here in the audience. Yeah, and so, I mispronounced uh, his last name. Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm hopefully I got it right. You did. I, uh, at, I got it right. At, at Mike the Man on Twitter uh, is the new safety and security engineer for PyPI. That's awesome, Mike. Thank you so much. Cool. Clearly an area that needs lots of attention. So I just wanted to say welcome. Thanks for keeping us all safe out there. And uh, excellent. Yeah, I got Bye to day. hang out with Mike a lot at PyCon. So that's really pretty cool. Yeah, nice. super cool. Super cool. And then a couple quick announcements to two conferences for people. Uh, Packaging Con, follow up on all of your items, Brian. Packaging Con Cool. Is happening uh, fully online. Uh, no, hold on. No, it's happening in Berlin as hybrid. So it's in Berlin, October 26 to 28 for all things packaging, Python people, Rust people, etc. So um, check that out. And the Cloud Builders Python Conf is September 6, 2023. That's put together by a Ukrainian group and it's just online. So people can check that out as well. And speakers, are they still have a call for proposals? Doesn't look like it. I think it's open. It's already all set for the um, agenda. So people can check that out. Should be fun. Uh, and on to your big news. 
Okay. Well, a couple, um, uh, just a couple notes that I wanted to, to, to mention. Um, the August release of Visual Studio Code has something I've been long awaiting. It's an error-tolerant PyTest discovery. So what does this mean? It, it means you, you've got, and there's like some comments down here. Oh, I went too far. Um, you have to turn it on right now, uh, but it's just in a setting. Um, apparently some people have it on by default. Anyway, they should just turn it on. It's better. Um, but the, uh, the gist is if you've got like errors uh, in some of your code, it used to not, it used to just blow up. Like, let's say you've got a test suite, but you also have like some old junk tests off in a side directory that you don't use anymore. If they had import errors or syntax errors or whatever, it would just blow up the whole thing and you couldn't get any tests to import. Now it's tolerant and it just turns off the, it doesn't, it doesn't import those tests that have import errors. That's great. So you can still run the rest of the suite. So that's good. Um, it'd be kind of still kind of cool. There's a couple things. It'd be kind of cool if it could tell you which ones had errors instead of just making them disappear. So that'd be neat. Uh, the other thing is guys, PyTest isn't capitalized. So you could get to work on your capitalization, non-capitalization. Uh, anyway. But discovery probably should be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Discovery should be. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. That's, that's tough. Anyway, I always, uh, I'm always <laughs> unsure about my capitalization. Um, it's so formal to capitalize everything. Uh, uh, we're, it's this time of year again, we got Python three twelve release candidate one. So, uh, we're in the release candidates for Ooh. Python three twelve. It's pretty exciting. Release candidate is a big deal though, right? It's, we think this is the final version unless there's something gone wrong. Yeah. Right? It's, it's right out of beta. Um, so anyway, speaking of beta, the big news for today is that uh, I've got a Py Python testing with PyTest bundle course up. Uh, and I'm super excited about it. I'm working really hard. However, uh, it is in uh, pre-release pre beta. I don't know. I made up something. That, early bird. Early bird sort of. Uh, so really there's data bird. Yeah. So what is going on? So there's it's the in the end, it's going to be um, actually I, I wrote it. I included on here is a video um, that is got like uh, welcome to the pre-release beta. And what does that mean? Video. So you can watch that. Um, the gist of it is, is uh, the three sections of the book are going to go into three different courses. But the the pre-release right now that's for sale is a bundle of all that will be all three. Uh there's two chapters ready for um, for the primary power for the first part, and uh, but I'm just going to chug along, and uh, people can jump in if they want. I'm I'm doing it as a beta because the book itself really is better because of the beta program that I did when I was writing the book, and I'd love to have people come in and uh, let me know where things need a little polish, and we can um, you know we can fix it all along the way. I also am setting up a. a job or not a job board <laughs> a discussion board for people to ask questions if they get stuck uh, i really want to make sure everybody's successful and getting getting this up and running getting up and running and pytest quickly so uh totally excited about getting this done oh one more thing i set up um uh i just just launched it last night but uh for python bytes listeners you can use the coupon code python bytes with a y so and uh he, um, we're, we'll just throw that in the show notes. Use Python Bytes uh, with a Y and you can get 20% discount now through the end of the 17th. So just a few days, um, but uh, that's enough time to grab it. So cool. Yeah, awesome. Congrats on this, Brian. This will be exciting. 
And yeah. I know it's a lot of work, so. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, do you know what else is a lot of work? And ties back to my first item, learning JavaScript. Let's make that our joke. Okay. All right. So here's a text. It looks like a WhatsApp conversation that somebody got, unfortunately, from their apartment manager. And of course, it's addressed to Michael, which is extra funny. Hello, Michael. Your apartment has received the second complaint. Uh, noise from the apartment is the problem. The dog whines. Apparently, you leave one home and the dog gets bored. Please address this. The response from Michael is, hello, I don't have a dog. This is me learning JavaScript. <laughs> like screaming and yelling and kicking. <laughs> oh, dog whines. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. That is pretty funny. It could be like learning all sorts of programs. It could be learning Python, but yeah, feels yeah. a little extra special. A little extra special there. Have you got your webpack working? Have you got your requires working? Uh, have you got your transpiler working yet? Man, th that was me with like trying to relearn CSS. Um, so first time I learned CSS, we didn't have all these like pre-compilers and stuff. Um, so mm. CSS is a completely different ballgame now. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's crazy stuff. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, this is my joke for everyone. We've received a noise complaint. I'm sorry. I don't have a dog. <laughs> awesome. Well, <laughs> it was a fun episode. Thanks again. Yeah, sure was. See you later. Bye.